In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. First off, wishing all our listeners a very happy new year 2022. We have Rob Fitzpatrick with us today. Rob is an entrepreneur of 12 years. He now specializes in the gathering of unbiased customer learning and taking an idea from nothing through to its first dozen or so paying customers. Rob is the author of the Mom Test book about uh, how to talk to customers and learn if your business is a good idea, even when everyone is lying to you. He has taught at top universities, including Harvard, MIT, UCL, and many more. He's a co-author of Workshop Survival Guide about how to design and run effective, engaging, high-energy workshops. And last year, he released his third book, Write Useful Books. Hi, Rob. Welcome to our show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to be chatting. Yeah, likewise. And I just took that from the introduction from uh, Goodreads, to be honest. It needs a little bit of update after your success of the third book as well. Oh, that, that's all right. It's pretty accurate. You know, I'm writing books and making products and that's, uh, that's what I do. Awesome. So, um, uh, Rob, uh, jumping right um, into the first question, right? Uh, very curious about your new book, Write Useful Books. It's just been about six months that you've released. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It came out in July. So uh, December was the sixth month, which is really interesting for me because most books do most of their sales in the first three months and then they kind of fade away and they don't recover because they're being actively hyped and marketed by the author. So the, the books I've always tried to write, and I have a whole product design philosophy around this for books, is, is to make them so that they're long lasting and they actually grow through recommendations over time. So I care a lot. It's so exciting to see months four through six because that's where I get to find out if it's actually going to be recommendable or not, if it's going to grow or if it's going to fade. And uh, yeah, th this one's doing pretty well so far. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, uh, one of our guests on our podcast, Wes Bush, had recommended uh, quite a lot of our listeners your first book, The Mom Test. And uh, that's when uh, a lot of listeners uh, came back to us and said that, you know, it would be amazing to have Rob on your show as well. So very excited and humbled to have you on our show and discuss about your book, Write uh, Useful Books. So I think I, I've glanced through it a little bit. It talks about pleasure givers and problem solvers. So your book is more of on the second category, like problem solvers. Yeah. The idea here is that um, there, there's two really different types of, of nonfiction. So people typically think like fiction versus nonfiction, but it, there's some types of, of nonfiction that are actually closer to a novel. So if you write like a biography or a, a storytelling book or a history book or a philosophy book, people usually read it for pleasure. They're not reading it to solve a sharp specific problem. In some cases they might. But uh, where someone picks up like a book on negotiation, like uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, this amazing book on negotiation, you're doing it because you want to solve a problem in your life or your work. You want to answer a question. You want to learn a skill. You want to deal with a negotiation that's coming up. And that's the type of book that I think is, is most interesting because you can treat it like a product. You can understand that problem that your readers have. You, you can test whether your manuscript is solving it for them, wh whether they actually take the advice in the book and are able to apply it to their lives and move forward. And if you get that right, it actually behaves really strongly. People are like, oh, you're having this problem. You should read this book. This book is the solution to that problem. 
And that gives you your recommendation loop and your organic growth. And that's what allows the book to start behaving like this long lasting profitable product. Like the mom test does this, the mom test does 20,000 a month in royalties right now, uh, $20,000. The new book is uh, doing eight and a half thousand dollars in royalties right now and growing pretty well. And so these are, they don't scale forever, but the way I hear a lot of founders talk on, on, on like indie hackers, like, man, you should be making an information product, not a tech product, at least as your first one, because they're, they're quicker to get out the door, they're cheaper. And for this, if you need a few thousand a month, uh, the, these info products or, or books or whatever, is, it's just such a faster way to get there. And then you've got your, your freedom of attention and your freedom of time, and you can start investing in the type of business you really want to build. Like, for example, the royalties from my latest book, Write Useful Books, in the first six months, it's done about $50,000 in total, 49,000, so just under 50. And we've just using that to bootstrap our next software business. So I don't even see those royalties. Those royalties are the seed funding for our next business. And in this way, like the book is enabling me to build software the way I want without having to raise funding for it. Whoa, that's an amazing um, thought process as well. So I I, I was reading somewhere that uh, your first book, uh, Mom Test, did almost like half a million of total in royalties, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, it's past that now. It's closer to $600,000 in total royalties now, which is like a small software acquisition, right? It's it's a nice piece of money. And that that book's been running for eight years. And it took a long time. It took three years to get past 3000 a month in revenue. So the way I do it is, first, I obsess over the product design of the book itself. Uh, does it solve a problem? Is it desirable and effective? Uh, does it work? Is it readable? Do people get to the end? Does it look professional and polished? I've got the, I test pretty hard. I, I write my book slowly. Um, but I'm always in contact with readers and iterating. And there's the product side. And if you've done that, you're like, okay, I know it's recommendable. I've seen these early signs. And, and then marketing is just about like, how do I find the first thousand people and, and let them know that this book exists and show them that they're going to get value from it. So for mom test, I did it with giveaways at events. I gave away 700 copies at events and I, I sold hundred copies by writing blog posts. Um, and I got the events to cover printing costs. So I, I didn't lose money. I didn't gain money, but a thousand people, or well, in that case, 800 people had the book. And I was like, cool, now it's either going to grow or it's not. And, and so it just did its thing and, you know, it slowly grew. And now eight years later, it's, you know, it, it sells a lot of copies and they teach it in a lot of places. And it's not because I had some marketing trick, right? It's because it was a fundamentally useful product. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's, that's the whole philosophy. That's, that's what I try to do. But you have to market. Like if you make a useful product and you tell nobody about it, who's going to recommend it? So you need to be willing to do that first stage, get to that first thousand readers. And after that, you can go, okay, now it's organic. So true. And uh, I'm curious, like a physical book, right? Uh, if I were to draw analogies, it feels like it's like a digital product as well. These days, books have, uh, you know, audiobooks clubbed into it. They have a lot of courses, curriculum attached to it as well. Yeah, the basic breakdown for pure nonfiction is 25% uh, of the copies are, are paperbacks, 25% are ebooks, and 50% are audiobooks right now, which is crazy. And audiobook is also really important for building a relationship with your readers. If you narrate it yourself, if you're comfortable doing that, people get to hear your voice, they get to hear your enthusiasm. And what people are learning about, about nonfiction is that selling a book, if you're self-published, you, you get five, seven, $10 per copy that you sell. If you do it as a digital bundle, maybe you get $50 or $100. Like if you look at what Steph Smith has been doing with doing content right, it's only available as a PDF and it's $49 or maybe even more than that now. She keeps increasing the price and she should. It's a great book. 
And she's made a killing, but she doesn't even have it available on Amazon as a paperback. And a lot of authors choose to do this because you have more pricing power when you're able to include these digital add-ons. Uh, Janelle Loy did it with Newsletter OS where she charged $50, $60. And it's basically a Notion template with a bunch of like guidance and interactive things for you to design your newsletter plan for pricing power. And that works really well for, uh, for, for technical founders also because the reason most authors don't do that is they don't know how to set up the website and they don't know how to drive the traffic. But if you do know how to do that, you've got a lot more pricing power there. Cool. Anyway, on Amazon, you get 5 or $10 per book if you self-publish. If you go through a traditional publisher, you only get a dollar per book. So if you're going traditional publisher, you really need to get to everyone because the royalties aren't going to be significant otherwise. And what more people are learning is that the, the most valuable part of the book is, isn't the, the book royalties themselves. It's the relationship it gives you with the reader. And so they're trying to put these lead magnets into the book that are high value. Nir Eyal and James Clear both did this pretty well with their books where they said, hey, if you want to build these habits, hey, if you want to follow through on this, like I've made this email support system, like email me here, give me your email here, and, and you're going to get all this help executing, following through, doing the work. And Nir told me that when, when he started his first book, he had uh, 5,000 email subscribers, which is, you know, that's still good. That's not zero. Uh, but two books later, he has 250,000 email subscribers. And it was by doing a combination of writing in public, sharing his work as he did it, as he's writing the book, it goes out. Um, and then also putting these wonderful lead magnets into the book to recover the relationship. So yeah, that, that stuff matters. And if you get the relationship, Amazon makes it really hard, but if you can get it by what you put inside the book, it just opens the door to, 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 to so many other business options, to, to consulting, to software. We're, we're using the book as a kind of education and lead gen. And then the people who read it and, and love the approach, some of them join our author's community, which is paid, that's $20 a month. And then from the author's community, they reach the point where they're able to use our software. So for us, the book, the paid community and the software are like three pieces of the same customer journey. And they're really important. The book is our marketing for the software, right? Uh, you can think about them more strategically than just selling a PDF. I, I love it when, um, you know, uh, nonfiction or business writers who have a technical or, a, or an entrepreneurial background, they understand the entire value chain per se, as opposed to a, maybe a bunch of fiction writers 10, 15 years back, they just had to release one manuscript, go via the publishing route, and then publish it via one of their marquee publishers. So these days in fiction, the, the interesting business model trick is all about writing series. So if you write, so let's say you self-publish one novel and you sell it for $10. When people buy it, you get $7 royalties. Cool. But you're like, that's it. And it's really hard to market to new customers if you're only getting $7 from each sale, right? And, and so it's like, uh, how do I do this? But if you have a series of five books or 10 books that are you know all linked together, if someone buys the first book and they love it, they buy all the rest. So you've just multiplied your value per customer by 5X or by 10X. And that means that if you've got $35 profit per reader or you've got $50 profit per reader, it gets a lot easier to market. And so the having the series really changes the, the business model uh, for fiction authors. And they're able to do things like make the first book in the series free or as cheap as possible uh, as a lead magnet, as almost like a free trial into the rest of the series, which you can't do if you only have one book. Or they do a book swap with another author in a similar genre where they each give away the first book in their series to each other's lists. And, and they can do all these creative things, but it requires having a series, which obviously takes a, a pretty big multi-year commitment. Yeah. And uh, like you come from a strong entrepreneurial background as well. So how do you approach if your book is a product, then how do you know about the product market fit? I mean, you know, based on your three <laughs> book launches as well. 
so I, I try to get involved with readers as early as possible. And I'm looking for what they do, not what they say. So the books I write are meant to solve a problem. You know, one taught you how to do customer interviews, another taught you how to design a workshop. This one teaches you how to, how to build successful nonfiction. And, and so I start by teaching. You know, if you know the, the Lean Startup terminology, the teaching is basically an, a concierge MVP for a book. So if, before I wrote uh, the current one, Write Useful Books, I started it because a friend of mine, Veronica in, in Barcelona, she said, Rob, you've written books. Like, can we meet for a coffee? And will you give me advice? I was like, sure. Uh, let me type up some notes and you read those notes first and then we'll meet and we'll, we'll answer your questions. I ended up writing like 10 pages of advice, just real quick, like a super big email, just like do this, don't do this, think about this. She had so many questions. I expanded it. I clarified those after she'd asked the questions. So now it's like 30 pages. And that was the beginning of the manuscript. It didn't come out of my head. It came out of my readers' questions and my readers' problems, and my readers' goals. And starting, and, and she goes almost immediately, she goes, wow, can I send this to like 10 of my friends? There's so many people who need to see that this. And I'm like, aha, I'd love to see that. The fact that she wanted to spend the time talking to me shows that the problem is desirable. The fact that she wanted to send the early versions to other people is a sign that it works, that it's a little bit effective, that it's recommendable. And then those early signs give me the confidence, okay, let's lay down more of the manuscript. Let's invest that effort. And I usually do the first like three revisions by myself. And then after that, I start sending it out to beta readers. And something I'm trying with my, my fourth book that I'm working on now is th this advice came from Marty Kagan, where he says, you don't need to beta read the whole book at the beginning. You only need to beta read the most important idea. So like write a six page version or a 12 page version, which is the most important idea or the core thesis of the book and get people to start beta reading that. Because if that core idea doesn't work for people, the rest of the book won't work either. That's like the key risk of the whole book. And I've been doing that. It's actually so fun because it, it lets you get to the beta reading stage so much faster. And I'm like, it's helped with everything. I, I need to do an update to write useful books where I talk about this approach because it's so powerful. I think uh, you, you love the uh, how-to guides as well, right? One of your favorite books by uh, book is maybe uh, Bradford Angier's How to Stay Alive in the Woods as well. As a title, yeah. I, I like titles that are really descriptive about what you're going to get out of them. So for me, a bad title is like the sales innovation, you know, because it's like, what's that really about? Like, I, I like titles that are... Like they, they, they tell people. That being said, my first book is called The Mom Test, which obviously doesn't say anything. And the reason I did that is because at the time I was pretty convinced that that book's really specific. It's kind of written for introverted techies who are trying to do customer conversations. It's like pretty specific who it's for. So I didn't expect people to just see the book and randomly pick it up. I expected them to be going through like a startup accelerator or talking to a, a, another founder or a mentor. And that person's like, they're like, man, I'm struggling with customer conversations. They're like, oh, you got to read this book. And so that's why I chose a silly name because I wanted a name that was memorable and easy to spell as opposed to a name that was descriptive. Whereas I've realized that was a bit suboptimal. I was thinking too small because you want it to be able to be recommended, but you know, it's, it's also good if it's descriptive because then you're getting both channels. Amazon discovery is basically your organic search. And then word of mouth is you know, your targeted recommendation. And ideally, you want both channels working for you. Yeah. And um, I was just looking into, you know, the kinds of book which are very specific. They start with a how. They have a lot of uh, worksheets, actionable notes, pointers, and something founders or people who are really busy and they do not have the time they can actually take and implement in their real life scenarios as well, right? Yeah. Like, think about it this way. Nobody reads the second best book for them. They, they, they read what they think is going to be the best book for them. 
So if you're looking at two books and one's like everything about sales and the other's like enterprise sales for introverted techies and you're an introverted techie, you're definitely going to choose the one that's more specific because you're going to think that it, it'll be a better fit for you. And obviously assuming it, it has comparable user reviews and recommendations and all this stuff. And so when you go, okay, so how do I make the best book in the world for a group of people? If that topic is big, sales, software, programming, leadership, it's really hard. You've got to be a genius to make the best book for everyone. And even then it's hard because different people need different things. It's the same with products. If you're trying to serve every market at the same time, it's really hard to know what features are in and what features are out. As you get more specific about who the customer segment is, you realize, oh, I don't need that chapter. I don't need that feature. Oh, I can assume they already know how to do this because of who they are. So I can skip explaining that and get to the good stuff faster. And all of these little changes, they come from being specific about who you're serving. And that allows you to build a better product, not for everyone, but for them. And what I love to see in my user reviews, I would hate to have all four-star reviews because then it's like, oh, it was okay for everybody, but nobody loved it. What I look for is I want mostly five-star reviews plus a handful of one-star reviews because the one-star reviews show that the wrong people are reading it. It's like the five stars, like for the people it's for, they love it. And then other people are like, I don't get this. This sucked. This is worthless. And it's like, all right. Yeah. Cause you know, it's not for you. It's not for everyone. And I think that's a better approach to making a recommendable product. Yeah. I think reviews, I, I was just looking into the reviews at uh, good, good reads. Actually, there are like six, four, six, zero ratings and uh, six fifty eight reviews for your uh, profile as well. All the reviews matter, but quite curious uh, from a, from an author's point of view, right? What's your worldview as an as an author before you started in your journey, right? From 2013 onwards, how it has evolved and how do you see a bunch of things around you? Just curious around those areas. I wrote the first one and I, I really didn't expect it to succeed because you know everyone tells you books don't succeed. Books are hard. Books are a gamble. Like books are a waste of time. Do it because you love it, not because you expect it to work. And I was like, so I went in with that attitude because that's what I'd always heard. And the reason I wrote it was just because I felt like I'd learned something important. I'd learned something about how to do sales as an introverted techie. And I was like, this wasn't available in the other books I read. So I wanted to put it out almost as a, a like a social enterprise where it's, it's sort of like, hey, if this helps one person like me avoid all the trouble I went through, great. And so I wrote it with that attitude. And that's part of also why I never bothered to really market it after the seed stage, because I, I was like, you know, I, I don't want to force it. And it's ended up being like a lot of other types of people because it's specific about who it's for. Other groups are able to read it. Like a lot of project managers read it now. A lot of traditional salespeople read it. And that surprised me because it's not written for them. It's clearly written for introverted techies like me, but they get that and they're like, oh yeah, it's not for me, but I can still learn from it. And so by being specific, it ended up working for more groups of people. Whereas if I tried to serve all of them at the beginning, it would have been wishy-washy for everybody. So as that book started to succeed, I was like, ooh, actually, this is a bit of a business. And I, I can take what I learned by doing the first one and be a lot more you know, thoughtful about the second. The second was also a case where I thought like, I've learned something about education. I don't want to teach anymore, but I don't want my knowledge to be lost. So I'm going to write it in a book so that what I've learned is there. That book though, that was hard to, to get it finished. It took two years. It was so hard to write. We kept having to restructure it. We couldn't figure out how to make it work for people. We eventually got there. Uh, but by the time we finished, my co-author and co-founder, Devin, was having his baby. So we were on like a deadline to get finished before the baby arrived. And also I was so burned out. You know, I just wanted to, to leave the city, to go sit on my boat, like to stop working for a while. And so we were just out of energy. And so we, we launched it. We didn't even tell anyone when it launched. I was already on the boat with no internet when it launched. And we just set up some ads and we're like, it's going to do its thing. And that book got hit pretty hard by COVID. 
but it still does $3,000, $5,000 a month in royalties every month. And that's just on autopilot. And with the new book, what changed is I'm like, okay, I understand the passive income word of mouth side of books. Like I get that. And that's what my third book is about. However, with the third book, the first two were like, I'm done with this. I've learned it and I'm done with it. And so writing the book was the end of that stage of my career. With Write Useful Books, it was different because I'm like, I want to build a whole business in this industry. So the book is the beginning of my career in this industry, not the end of it. Uh, and so that meant that I wanted to build the author platform. I wanted to continue to doing mar marketing to accelerate it. I wanted to build the customer relationship with my readers because I also want to build software and community for them. And so I'm spending a ton more follow through, which is why it's growing so much faster than the other books. Like mom test probably took five years to sell it, start selling a thousand copies a month and write useful books got there in, in, in six months, which is so exciting. So it, it's just going so much faster because it's got that recommendable foundation, but then I'm also hustling the marketing. Like you see, we, we first met because you came to an interview that I did with a Sahil from Gumroad about his new book. And I've been doing that every two weeks. I do an interview with an author or an expert. Like that goes out on YouTube. I, I send out clips. We're building educational courses from them. We're, we're like, we've got all these pieces in play that are, are really accelerating things. I don't think it would be worth it just to sell books, but given that we've got the rest of the business, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I, I could foresee that maybe uh, I think this pandemic is, uh, you know, getting uh, delayed. Maybe, you know, for another few months, it will still be there. So uh, later this year, uh, is there a possibility for your fourth book's release as well? So the fourth book's different as well. I, I, this one I, I'm writing not because I know something, but because I'm trying to learn something, which is a little bit different for, for me. And it's community. I, I'm trying really hard to learn how to build communities that are focused around an outcome. So they're not like, let's hang out together. They're like, hey, we're trying to build profitable businesses. Hey, we're trying to run a marathon. Hey, we're trying to write a successful book. Outcome-oriented communities, I'm calling them. And that's the... I'm trying to build it for my business and I'm, I'm spending a ton of time like researching, learning, thinking, experimenting. And, and so I started by writing the internal documentation for my team. Like, this is the way we are thinking about community. This is what we're doing. This is what we're trying. This is why we're doing it this way. And as I went with that and it started to click together, I'm like, oh, I like, I still don't know the answers, but I'm having a lot of fun learning about it. And, and I'd like to put that out there. So this is a book of my learning in progress about outcome oriented communities. And yeah, people have started beta reading it. There's early signs of recommendability. So far, the people who are reading it, they're like, can I share this with the rest of my team? Which I love to see, right? Like that's the early behavior. Some people are telling me like, oh, I changed my, I changed the way I'm running my community based on this idea. So there's these early signs that it's, it's you know, there's something valuable and I, I'm loving it because it's giving me an excuse to spend way more time thinking about community stuff, which is important for me to do and to learn about. Absolutely. I would love to support you, Rob, as well in this particular journey, because last year I did a community building fellowship at OnDeck and I learned a lot of uh, new ways of building communities as well. Of course, uh, the, the best of the community builders in, in the world, I think uh, David Spinks was there where, you know, he has built Bevy and there are a lot of other community builders as well who are giving their theories. In the SaaS world, there's a community-led growth that has come up apart from the product-led growth, sales-led growth, etc. Uh, but the interesting part is the decentralized communities that are coming up, which is like where the crypto people people sneaking. Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like community is such a foundational skill right now. And part of why I'm also excited to be spending the time on it is, is I feel like this is the, the, the skill that's going to drive the next 10 years or 20 years, the next wave of, of really interesting startup. And so I kind of feel like I have to learn it in order to be able to have the ideas and execute them on them for the, you know, the next stage of business. 
Yeah, on communities, you know, I, I just got um, uh, embedded into a community of writers where you are trying to collectively write. It's called Foster. You is running it. And uh, the interesting part is, you know, we are getting a lot of feedback from our fellow community members who are writers themselves. So it's like getting editorial uh, feedback from fellow writers who are really in the same journey as well. So that's a new way of writing collaboratively. Yeah, I actually applied to Foster the other day. I, I was super curious because my author's community is, is more around like accountability and strategy. So it, it, and it's specific to books. So we're kind of going in there. It's like, oh, you know, how should I be thinking about my author platform? Should I do the podcast book tour? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm getting this data back from my beta readers. What does it mean? And what should I do about it? So we're kind of like a product design community where the product is, is books, which is, but we don't actually look at each other's writing. You know, we're, we're not giving each other feedback on our writing. It's more about like the strategy and the product design It's one level up. So, so it's a bit different than Foster. And I was quite interested in what they did, but I wanted to say for, for you or for anyone who's listening to this, if you're interested in, in the outcome oriented community stuff, and you want to take a look at my, my early ideas and versions, just email me robertrubpitz.com. And I, I'd love to send you the, the manuscript and get your feedback. It's still super early, but you know, we can, we can build it together. Absolutely. I'll give a shout out to, on my show notes as well. Very curious, right? The other day I was there or participating in uh, the Substack silent writing hours where it's fun, you know, they play the music of Robert King's, uh, you know, happenstance. And, uh, and the interesting part is every writer within the community who are on Substack, they're actually letting the other writers know what they have written over a period of one hour. So it is like outcome driven writing, which is very new way of writing, right? I mean, like one year back, you would not have imagined writers collaboratively writing with the background music somewhere on, on, on the other side of the Zoom call as well. So there's a new uh, ways of uh, collaboration happening among um, uh, writers. So um, uh, apart from the Fosters, the Substack, uh, Silent Writing Hours, according to you, do you foresee any futuristic trends as well, Rob, in this space? Interesting. There's, I mean, the shift to, to audiobooks has been insane. And if you continue with that, people obviously like the voice and the video as a way to, to consume nonfiction. And video courses and courses and communities have so much more pricing power. And so I think there was a while where like book as business card was sort of a stage that nonfiction went through where people ignored the revenue and the income from the book. And the whole point was to sell consulting services or to build trust so that people would call you and, and hire you. I think a very, a stronger business model and like the next wave of that business model is like the book is the education. So the book is the map. Then you've got a paid community, which is like the accountability layer. So it's like, and the social side, it's like, hey, we're all doing this together. We're all going through this journey together. Then within the community, you've got cohort-based courses, which are shorter and they're about specific skills. So in books, it would be like doing your table of contents and scoping, doing your like market research and setting up your ads. So there's these little sharp moments, uh, which are well-suited for brief cohort-based courses. And then at the end of that, you've got premium services for people who want it. So we've talked about putting a, a full publishing house on top of our community and basically taking the best people out of the community and giving them publishing deals. Uh, we've done two of them so far as experiments, but we're, we're putting it on pause for a while because it takes a ton of cash and you know we're still bootstrapping. And so I think that that like stack of education, accountability from the community, cohort-based courses for skill building, and then uh, service or software at the end, really strong structure. The, the problem with it is that it takes a long time to build because writing a book is slow, setting up all these pieces is slow. So there's this big upfront cost, but if you run the process thoughtfully, it's very low risk. Because I knew like early in the writing process that this would be a successful book 
not because I was confident, but because of the signs I was seeing from beta readers. So it's like data driven. I think um, uh, one of the interesting business model that I have been observing is that um, how, um, uh, you know, uh, I was just reading this book, uh, The Antisocial by Ben Mesrick. And uh, what he has done is that he is actually launching NFTs in his uh, server as well. So there's a possibility of that book being a particular movie at a later point in time. There's a few cool, so there's a few crypto native experiments for books. The earliest was basically using nifties and crypto as a PR strategy, as a marketing strategy. The biggest uh, like exploitation of this was by uh, Gary Vaynerchuk for his latest book, where he said, if you buy what, 12 copies or 13 copies, you got a nifty. But he had this massive tailwind where his previous Nifty project had sold out and was worth like 500 million. And there was like a 20 Ethereum floor on, on these Nifties, the Gary V friends. And so people had this fierce fear of missing out on that. And they thought like, oh, it's his next Nifty. And I guess time will tell whether it proves to be worth it or not. But people were like taking out loans to buy a thousand copies of the book as like basically buying lottery tickets. And anyway, whatever, like Gary plays the game and, and he crushed it as one of his books would say. But to me, that's not very interesting. What's interesting is where the crypto or the, the nifty is, is a core part of it. And Neil Gaiman, who wrote American Gods and Sandman, he started one called, gosh, what is it called? I always forget the name. Uh, it, it's sold out, but there's a writer's room where the token holders basically get, it buys you votes in the editorial direction of the cast of characters, the spinoffs and the future books. And where that, that has a financial motivation, because one of the ways they've set it up it, is that they will bring in other characters from other crypto universes for this main character to interact with. And so if you're trying to bootstrap a separate crypto character elsewhere, it makes a lot of economic sense for you to buy up voting power or influence so that you can get your character brought into this already successful series as a way to make your character more well-known and valuable. So that was a really smart case where the tokens actually have some sort of creative utility and they also have financial utility, uh, which is always going to keep a floor on their value. I like that. There was another one that was really smart. Oh, the one I'm, I'm super excited about isn't actually around the IP, but it's around the royalties. So I want to give my beta readers tokens, like royalty tokens in return for their contributions to making my book better. Uh, and then that can't be done right now because royalty management costs too much admin. And, and so it would suck to have to pay like 2000 royalty payments for one book to all these little contributors. But if you can set that up as a smart contract or as a token, then you can basically use beta reading as proof of work and distribute these little royalty stakes or even let people... I'm planning to do this for my uh, community book. So I, I don't have the, the like the full crypto setup yet. So I'm basically tallying it manually. So it, ours is not distributed. Like you have to trust me for it to work. But if you trust me, there will be a smart contract, which is going to distribute all the royalties out to all of the contributors. And I haven't actually told contributors yet, but they are in fact earning tokens based on how they engage and what they do uh, that are going to, that'll get airdropped to them eventually. Oh, nice. Because um, now, Rob, uh, I have a suggestion for you in this regard. Uh, you know, there's there's a website called as mirror.xyz. Yeah, I, I do know Mirror. I don't think I have the fame or the popularity. So basically every week there's like a little vote or a competition to see who gets to, you know, write on Mirror. And uh, I'm, I need to try. Maybe I do have the support. 
Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> it's, it's easy. And I think um, some of the use cases that you are actually talking about, I think those could be worked out within Mirror as well. So you just have to connect the wallet, the ETH wallet that you have to your um, you know, username, etc. Link it uh, to your uh, Twitter account and thereafter try to do a little bit of uh, publishing via a particular, maybe a particular page or maybe a particular two, three pages, etc. as your first draft itself. And thereafter, you can see how the tokenomics and a bunch of things can operate within it. And of course, Mirror is also evolving. So maybe in 2022, it will be a good sweet spot of convergence as well. I love it. And uh, hearing that you're already on there, that, that's given me the nudge. So I'm, I'm going to commit. I'm going to try to enter the competition, get my, get my place. And um, uh, quite curious about your choice of uh, books as well. I've read a few of your books. Obviously, I know that you, you are really long and big on, on your favorite nonfiction books. But do you have a book uh, that you would recommend uh, to some of your listeners uh, around the fiction area as well, or maybe faction area, which is like fact plus fiction, etc.? Oh, for, for fiction, I'm really enjoying the big uh, sci-fi and fantasy epics. So some of my favorite series um, for, for fantasy, the Stormlight Archives is amazing. That's Brandon Sanderson. It's like this, this heavy world building. You sort of have to trust that he knows where he's going with it. But everything Brandon Sanderson writes is, is amazing. And I think Stormlight Archives was my favorite of his. And then also the Biathan Wakes is sci-fi, this like big roaming space thing. It's awesome. I'm on book three of that now, and I'm loving it. That's what I'm reading at the moment. And another fantasy one that a lot of people overlooked is called uh, the Powder Mage, uh, Powder Mage Chronicles, I want to say. And it's, it's such a cool concept. It's like there's gun magic, you know? So there's like traditional magic, and then like there's gun magic. And it's like, there's this like interesting power struggle and conflict that's like, anyway, it sounds silly, but super good. On nonfiction, I was thinking about this the other day. So everybody should read Amy Hoy's book, Just Fucking Ship. Uh, it's so good. So good. And I thought when I heard the title, I was like, ah, oh, she's just going to be encouraging me and hyping it up, hyping me up to do stuff. But actually, she gives such a practical uh, set of tools for getting over the, the imposter syndrome and the procrastination and, you know, building your project plan. Just Fucking Ship is Amazing by Amy Hoy. Everyone should read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, which is about negotiation. Such a fun read. He was the lead hostage negotiator with the FBI. And he's got like the most amazing stories, but there's also the, the education is so amazing. And if you're building a small business or you have employees, uh, the E-Myth Revisited is really important. It doesn't really apply to tech startups, but if you're doing anything like a productized service, or you're dealing with people or you have like non-programming staff, uh, that's a really important book. I don't know. There's probably a bunch of others that are slipping my mind, but the, those are like the, the ones I've been thinking about this week. Um, what do you think? What would you add to the list as your must-reads for everyone? You had recommended um, in your uh, latest one, it is On Writing Well by William Jinser. It's something that you had recommended itself. On Writing Well, I love. And also Traction by Gabriel Weinberg, probably a book that every SaaS founder should read, especially if you're technical, because uh, it really helps counterbalance our, our like impulse toward product. And apart from that, there's a million other brilliant books, but it's like I don't feel like everyone should read them. I feel like you should read them when you have this problem. Rob, on that actually, right? When you uh, give that preference of traction for SaaS founders, if you were to recommend a particular book or, or a kind of book for probable SaaS founders or maybe, you know, operators or VCs in that particular spectrum, how would you advise to newbie, a novelist or an author per se? Start by figuring out. So every book needs kind of a 
you got to position it. it it's got to be the book for someone. It, it helps someone do something. This is the book scope, right? It, you have a customer segment and you have a value proposition. And that gives you your edge. It, it gives you what's special about your book. For example, the mom test was like basically enterprise sales for technical introver introverts. The workshop survival guide is a workshop design for people who do not feel comfortable or like charismatic, you know? It's like, if you want to treat the workshop as a design problem instead of a performance problem. Cool. Uh, write useful books is like nonfiction for product designers. That like what it gives you and, and, and who it's for is where I start. And then I, you want to make sure that's correct. Uh, the way I do it is by talking to people, but some people do it by blogging, like Arvid Call, uh, Nir Ayal, Marty Kagan. They all, all do it by just blogging. And, and like Marty said that 70% of his books has already been released as a blog post before it becomes a book. And that's like his process for figuring out what resonates. And he'll often write many versions of the same article because he's like iterating on that chapter, so to speak, but as a blog post. Seth Godin does this as well. You can tell that his writes about a book a year and, and like about each year and a blog post every day. And you can sort of tell by looking at his blog post what his next book is going to be about because you can tell that's what he's thinking about. That's what he's researching. That's what he's talking about. That process works. Mine's a bit more like interview conversation focused and then shifting into uh, early beta reading. But you, you, you just can't write the book about everything for everyone. Like you, you got to know that piece and, and you got to figure out that they care because there's like a million books published per year. There's an insane number of new books per year. And if you're just like the other book about SaaS, that's not going to work. And it can be that you've learned something special, or it can be that you're translating it to a group of people in a language that's going to resonate for them. Like, for example, I'm, I'm sure that founders in Indonesia have different problems than founders in San Francisco. So like writing the SaaS book for either people who are like still in the developing world and that's where they're from or people who are traveling and, and digital nomading and it's like it's different constraints and, and just by translating the same body of advice to a different situation or a different person it's like suddenly it's a new book and it becomes the best book for them uh, so you know do that stay in, stay in contact with them and just remember like the success of the book is not about the quality of the writing quality of writing has to happen in the same way that like your website has to work but like just because your website works doesn't mean people are going to pay you for it they pay you for the value they get out of it. Decent writing is like making a website that works. It's like, it's just table stakes. It's something you have to succeed at in order to get in the game. But, but that's not what you get paid for. And this is the biggest confusion people have about books. They think that by writing really carefully and making beautiful sentences and proofreading it and editing it, that that's all it takes. No, that's like baseline. Uh, that's just a website. But like, what's the value proposition? Like, that's what matters. Who's it for? Uh, does it work for them? And, and that's what you got to test and iterate on. It reminds me of a good quote by Herbert Swope. Uh, he talks about that, you know, I can't give you a surefire formula for success, but I can give you a formula for failure. And that's to try to please everybody all the time. So it has to be super specific is what you're trying to hint at. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. it. Rings true for me. And then the other thing I would say is that writing a book is a lengthy journey. And there's a lot of quite stressful moments along the way. You have to like everyone enjoys different parts of the writing process. I really enjoy the first draft, the blank page. And I really dislike the editing. The editing to me is just like boring, busy work. Some people are the opposite, but like there's different things you have to do. Almost everybody hates the marketing side of it, <laughs> right? On that, I'm very curious. You, you know, uh, Rob, uh, when did you uh, write your first story of your life? I mean, was that in school or when was that? First story of my life? I, I don't know. What do you mean? Like a, like a personal essay? Like uh, creative writing, right? Something that you'd say that that's an amazing asset that you had created uh, a piece of creative writing. 
Oh, I, I don't know that I've ever made a creative writing that I'm really proud of. I mean, I did it in school, of course, and I enjoyed it, but it, it never stayed with me. Uh, the, the type of writing I, I do is just, you know, teach you how to do something. You know, it's like, I've learned this. Let me explain it. It's very much the educator's mindset. And that's not the only way to write. That's what I do. I always think I'm like, do I want to write a novel someday? And it's kind of in my head, but I'm not actually that excited about it. The, the bit that interests me is the, the intellectual side. It's like, how do I figure out a way to describe and convey this idea so that people get it? And I, I really like that challenge, that puzzle. Because, um, uh, you know, there's a five W framework as well around writing. Someone said that, of course, you have that how part of it. Like, how do you do certain steps like one, two, three, et cetera. But um, when you have to go really a little bit philosophical and, you know, a little bit intellectual on the side, then you go around the why side of it. Like, why do you want to do it, right? You know, going into multiple layers and then try, trying to, you know, carve out stories around that. But yeah, definitely, uh, you know, the more signal your book has for the right audience, it is good for the, for the customers as well. And uh, definitely we are all loving it or rooting for your success. Any closing um, uh, thoughts are uh, besides, you know, listeners will be reading your book, but any other closing thoughts, advice or feedback? Yeah, the, the biggest thing, and this is really about the entrepreneurial career or the creative career, is to, to think about it as a career. Think about it as something that's gonna last for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Because often when we get started, we, we think of like this company, it's like, I need this app to be profitable. I need this company to succeed. I need this book to be finished. And that's kind of short-term thinking that causes you to make some bad, you know, with suboptimal decisions. Like for example, uh, learning sales. For most SaaS founders, learning sales is, is going to be a horrible experience. They're not going to enjoy it. They don't want to do it. But and if you think about this company, you're like, I'm, I'm working on this company for two years. It's like, it's going to take you two years to get good at sales. So it's not worth it. But if you're thinking like, wow, I've got a 20 year career of creating things. If I had sales skills, that would help me with hiring. That would help me with negotiation. It would help me with fundraising. It would help me with selling. It would help me get profitable faster, which would de-risk my businesses. It would let me go after different industries with higher price points. And you're like, wow, I've got 20 years to benefit. It's totally worth spending two years of like being slightly awkward and uncomfortable to learn this skill. Um, also things like building an email list, building a reputation, building an audience, like what we were talking about, like investing in learning community. Is that worth it for my current business? Maybe, maybe not. It's pretty hard. There's easier ways to make money, but is it worth it for the next leg of my entrepreneurial career? Absolutely. Uh, and, and it also makes the failures less punishing. If you're only thinking about your current project, when it doesn't work, that's really upsetting because you're like, my thing is failing. Oh no. And it, it makes us make bad decisions. We hold on for longer than we should. We lose more money than we should. If you're like, Hey, it's just like when, when people get a job in a traditional career, if they take a job and they hate it and it doesn't work out and they need to quit, they don't go, Oh, my career is over. They go, Oh, that job sucked. And, and then they find a better one. And that's like the right attitude to be thinking about our projects and our businesses is like, whoa, that one sucked. You know, uh, let me let me try to take what I've learned here and make the next one a bit better. You know, the long term thinking. Excellent advice. Long term thinking for the creator journey, I must say. Exciting times for the creators in 2022 and beyond as well, because because the world has changed. Uh, people are not sticking to the traditional jobs as well. Uh, the nine to fives or like year and year kind of uh, jobs. They are they are approaching the, their uh, value water for for the time in a very different worldview altogether. And uh, many of the companies um, are realizing that the platforms that they are creating for the creators, those will survive when the creators really improve in their future journey as well. 
So um, uh, I've just launched my um, uh, CBC as well, the cohort based uh, course on Maven. And what I've realized is that, like you rightly said, a lot of the CBC creators, they know that it's not about the first course or the second course or the third course, but it's about how do you keep that course going on and on year after year is something that every CBC creator is trying to look into. Yeah, I, I love it. It's such a great approach. And it's such an exciting time right now to be an independent creator. It's unbelievable how much upside is suddenly available. Because it used to be like, I was like, I, I write a book and I'm like, yeah, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe it gets to 10,000 a month, 1,000 a month, whatever. But it's like, it's capped. Whereas now it, it's like, wow, I, I, I'm starting to see business models where I could take a semi-successful book or a little web app. And then like you get the right business model, technology, whatever. It's like poof, suddenly your upside is infinite again. And you get, you used to only get access to that sort of upside if you had like the big investment, the big team, the big hustle. And, and now you can do it as an individual. It's wild. It's not obvious how, like there's a lot of garbage out there also, but it's, it's such an exciting time, man. I'm, I'm so pumped right now. Likewise, Arab. So it was an absolute pleasure to have you on our show, Arab, and I uh, loved our conversations. And um, uh, thanks for all your advice, feedback, and suggestions as well. Happy to contribute in your manuscript as a beta reader, tester, whatsoever. And I will tell uh, and recommend to my friends and my fellow colleagues as well on that. Yeah.